Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by not one, not two, but three of the European Union's top advisors on science and ethics, Paul Nurse, Peter Piot and Christiana Vopen. So let's get going. So Paul Nurse is a geneticist and the Nobel Laureate, and he's now the director of the Francis Crick Institute, a major biomedical research centre in the UK, and he's also served as president of the Royal Society. He's now one of the European Commission's seven chief scientific advisors, and he was recently appointed deputy chair of that group. Peter Piot, aka Baron Piot, is the microbiologist who co-discovered Ebola, and he's worked extensively also in HIV and AIDS research. He's the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, one of the world's foremost research institutions in public health and medicine, obviously. And he's a past Undersecretary General of the United Nations, too. And he's now the Special Advisor on COVID-19 to President von der Leyen of the European Commission. And last but not least, Professor Christiana Vopen is a specialist in health and medical ethics. She's executive director of the Cologne Center for Ethics, Rights, Economics and Social Sciences of Health. And she served also as chair of the German Ethics Council and president of the Global Summit of National Ethics and Bioethics Committees. At a European level, she's chair of the European Group on Ethics in Science and New Technologies. Okay, so that's half the podcast spent in reading out your biographies, and I know I barely scratched the surface. But what connects the three of you, other than obviously your headline roles in advising the top level of European policymakers, is that you have collaborated during the past six months or so to issue two significant pieces of science advice on the subject of COVID-19 and pandemics. So last June, you wrote a joint statement on how science advice is functioning, or at least how it should function during the pandemic of 2020. And then in November, you published a detailed opinion uh, uh, with a capital O. So that's basically a summary of evidence and a set of concrete policy recommendations about how Europe should prepare for the next pandemic. So let's kick off by asking you about your collaboration experiences here. You you normally work separately. I realise that. What was it like in a practical sense, for you to collaborate on this piece of work? So the group of chief scientific advisors and the European Group on Ethics work usually in parallel. But we had already a meeting together when working on the future of work, so several years ago. And Rolf Heuer, who was the former chair of the group, um, was so open and we were both interested in working together more closely. And this pandemic was kind of the opportunity to do this and to come together. And we phoned and said, well, really to give sound policy advice in this broad perspective that we need, this multidisciplinary approach can be done now. And then we just decided to work together and it was a wonderful experience. Of course, there came the bureaucracy in and we had to yeah, to, to make this work somehow, but it worked wonderfully because everyone was in the spirit to work together. And um, so we came together with these online formats that the pandemic urged us to use 
And it was a very good. Of course, the first two meetings were a little bit about listening to the other approach and to learn to come together. But that was no problem at all in the in the long term. And we we tried it in the first statement on science advice. And we had a wonderful secretariat behind us bringing these perspectives together as well. And then setting up the second opinion as well. You know, the 100 pages on improving the pandemic management and preparedness. So I think if you have persons and, and, and people and experts who are already used to work in an interdisciplinary way, then it works. But it takes time to you. And, and that's why I think it's so, so important that people, of course, are very skilled in their own field. Yeah? And it shouldn't end up in a talk show. But to teach them to talk to other disciplines and to have other viewpoints as well and, and, and yeah, perspectives to get used to to use words in a different way or at least to understand that the word self-determination can be completely completely differently understood by sociologists ethicists molecular biologists and so on and then tech they talk about autonomous vehicles yeah <laughs> that hurts for a philosopher this notion so yeah <laughs> So it, it, it needs, yeah, it, you need to bring people together and to get used to talk to each other. Thanks. Uh, listeners will have deduced that that was Christiane Vopen and um, Paul. Paul Nurse, did you want to add something? Well, if I could um, respond to that, um, I've been involved in scientific advice um, for quite a few years in different circumstances. And many years ago, um, learnt the value and importance of multidisciplinarity in the widest possible sense. I think what has uh, marked this particular incident, this pandemic, is the um, exceptional need for that, combined with, and this is something Peter mentioned, um, being under the microscope for the entire time and working to very tight time schedules, which has meant that we've not had time to regroup and rethink and uh, work out how to work together, we have had to instantly start working together and um, to do that effectively. And uh, that means that really, and one of the uh, recommendations that we made out of the second longer report is that there needs to be somebody that looks at medical crises of the sort that we have now um, experiencing in Europe. And that, uh, as I already said, I think is an opportunity um, to practice working together so that we actually are better prepared to be able to do that. So I think that's, uh, that's very important. If I can make an aside, um, which isn't quite directly related to the issue that we're talking about, but I, I head up an institute which is a discovery research institute. I mean, many people would say we don't do anything useful, directly useful. I mean, we discover knowledge and then try and um, think about how that knowledge might be useful, but it's not, um, say, in the tropical school where it's focused on particular issues. But what this um, crisis has taught us is that um, basic discovery, pointy-headed scientists like me have had to get out into the real world, in this case, the medical world, and we have um, forged all sorts of links to those involved in medical practice, which have actually um, been difficult to do in the past. 
partly perhaps because of the um, of working always through medical schools, which always seem to be run by barons of different sorts. Um, we have one baron on the podcast, of course, but um, other sorts of barons, which can sort of get into the way of proper interactions and throwing um, our um, discovery scientists in with those at the clinical um, coalface has been incredibly stimulating. And I just wanted to say that. It's a little off the topic that you've uh, that we're discussing, but it's been uh, really an enlightening experience for me that we should in the future think more about how we can put these different sorts of peoples closely together and not always working through the bureaucracies, which always seem to be getting in the way. So I, that's one lesson I've had to learn. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm not a member of either group. Yeah, I, I, but I was. I really enjoyed it because I felt that we didn't have to invent uh, this kind of collaboration on the spot, because that makes it a bit more difficult. Even if the two groups I could here are, you know, have two different cultures, completely different cultures. Uh, I actually was the only health person uh, on the science uh, part to say so. What's key is one that you've done it before, that you have this attitude already, a lot is attitude, that you have experience, you have tried this uh, before on other things. There is respect for others' um, discipline. Not, it's not just respect for a person, but also for the methods and, uh, and the disciplines. I, I come back to that a lot because it's not there, I tell you. Uh, scientists like more on the life sciences and uh, physical sciences, they think that humanities and uh, philosophy, anthropology, this kind of not real science, you know, it's kind of... A, uh, and often from the social sciences, they think that um, those who practice then the so-called hard sciences, they have no mind, no, no, no soul or whatever. I mean, so you, you hear the most absurd things. We, we didn't have that. Um, but I think that what was a challenge, I think, was the um, combining the... The group don't, uh, more focus on science advice and more ethics, ethics advice. Again, I hope that that will be more of a, the way of working in the future, because I, I'm really a strong believer that you can't separate that. You, you have to separate that for specific issues. There's no doubt about that. And just as within the various disciplines, we need our own groups and so on to think through and particularly on methodological problems and on um, making sure that the various options are very clear. You, you, that needs discussion also among people from a, some discipline. But so the key is then for uh, thinking of the future for Europe, that indeed we need to make sure that uh, this way of working becomes the norm and the standard. And if it's not that way, it's bad. I mean, bad, in it doesn't meet our European way of, uh, of working. Yeah, thank you very much. So the voice you just heard was, of course, by elimination, our our resident baron, Peter Piot. So it seems like um, a common thread here among what, what all of you have just said is that you, you had a positive experience of working across disciplines, but that this doesn't come automatically. There are specific skills and uh, kind of habits that you have to acquire, that one has to acquire. And Peter, you mentioned just now that this needs some support and some some preparation. It strikes me this is also a theme of your opinion. It's one of your broad recommendations for the future to have a kind of interdisciplinary infrastructure for science advice. Could you develop that recommendation a bit more? What and how? Clearly, um, one needs to have inputs from a wide variety of disciplines 
ranging from um, the uh, hard natural sciences uh, through to the social sciences and to um, the humanities in general. And that's something that is not always fully appreciated. People tend to think that it's only scientific issues, um, natural sciences, and it is not. And uh, one interesting aspect of that, I think, is, is getting scholars from this wide range of different disciplines to work effectively together, because we actually are not really quite used to it. We all have our different ways of working and different nuances and so on. It's, it's natural, it's human. And yet suddenly we're all thrown together in a rather new situation. Uh, and I think we could profit from practice in this, to be quite honest. And uh, rather than being thrown together when we're in the middle of a crisis, which perhaps happens, that we, we should really practice working together and that's partly personal relationships, it's partly understanding the nature of different disciplines, which get driven by different sorts of evidence, which operate with different certainties. But if we don't know how to work with our colleagues, we're not going to be able to put all these different disciplines together in a productive way. So it is complicated, but I think it is soluble, and part of it is practice, and part of it is mutual respect of individuals coming from different disciplines and knowing we all have something to contribute. And we have to put it into the universities and into education as well from, from schools that um, the science in a narrow sense, I would say, are inherently tied to values and uh, to ethics and humanities. Um, and I would say that science in the narrow sense plus ethics or humanities are science in the broader sense because it's not that ethics is no science. We have our methods, we have our premises, we have our theories, we have our results, and we can discuss them. Of course, there are dissenses, we discuss things, but that's not different to physics or chemistry. Yeah, have a look at the history of physics, so many theories and framings that changed. Yeah, you have another look at it, you find something new, you interpret something differently. And um, so science is always evolving. And that's not the difference between natural sciences or the so-called hard sciences and the thinking sciences or the only thinking sciences not um, being tied to data like philosophy or ethics or so. I, I don't think that the core of those sciences is so different. It's the content, it's more the direction of asking things. So physics and chemistry more ask or molecular genetics and so on, ask more what is the case and what can we do with it? And ethics is asking what should be the case. But I think science is dependent on ethics and value thinking because they choose their goals. They choose their means that's value laden from the beginning. And ethics has to take into account what other sciences find out about the world, because if they want to assess what should be going on and what should people do, then um, it's necessary to learn about what is at stake. Uh, if, no, if you don't understand the technology or so what you're assessing, then you cannot assess it. It's only theory, but to, be, to really solve problems in the world and for societies, you have to take together all the disciplines and viewpoints. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with uh, Christian and, and, uh, and Paul. And I've learned this the hard way, in a sense. When you think of it, when I started as a microbiologist after medical school, I went to, to the other extreme and enjoyed myself studying plasmids and things like that. Uh, and now I, uh, you know, particularly through my work on, on AIDS, 
uh, I can't simply imagine another way than uh, having this multidisciplinary approach to, uh, I was going to say, to address complex issues, but every problem is complex and it requires all these dimensions. And, and that's one of the, uh, the challenges is that uh, now in the times of crisis, um, it is more obvious for most people that we need multiple disciplines. But that's the wrong time to put together the, uh, the multidisciplinary teams and particularly the multidisciplinary culture and spirit, uh, which I think the first thing I, I always say is to people is that, first of all, respect. Respect and acceptance that, uh, you know, some another discipline is also science. And because uh, one of the things that uh, at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, which is a very old fashioned name, but we are probably one of the most integrated multidisciplinary teams because we put them together around problems. When you study malaria, you have economists, you have historians, you have molecular biologists, clinicians, epidemiologists, lots of social scientists. And um, in the beginning, it's the vocabulary, understanding the same words don't mean the same things. Um, but, but above all, respect. And after a while, you develop this vocabulary. But you don't develop that in a time of crisis, although the cri crisis is always an opportunity to uh, move into a certain direction where you already have a foundation to then gel it and then people say, yeah, of course, we have to do that. And then you have to make sure when the crisis is over that you capitalize on that and that people don't go back to their old behavior. Certainly um, in, in every crisis now, it's clear that if we go for just one disciplinary approach, we fail. Just another epidemic that I was very involved in in uh, Ebola in West Africa, you know, you had uh, really huge... Uh, debates on policy, some people were only, uh, you had the modelers, they're very influential in, in the UK. Uh, they never meet people, but they see, you know, the screen is everything and they think that people are kind of rational uh, behaviors, uh, uh, exposures. Uh, we have then social scientists, we had the clinicians and so on. And it was every time when you had just one group or one discipline that kind of was in control, we didn't make much progress. It's really when you integrate it, but it's easier said than done. And, uh, and that's, I agree with Christian, we need to, uh, to train a, um, a new generation of people who uh, uh, integrate that in their just basic thinking and, um, and, and nurture it. Um, the modelers, I always think they're like chess players. They are moving chess pieces on a board but there is no blood in the chess pieces. There's no humanity there. And there isn't the same connection with people. And what we have to understand in, um, in dealing with policies, we are dealing with people. And as a, a, a consequence of that, we have to cross these disciplines to do that. But I think we need to go further and start at the beginning. And also the reward system should do that. So uh, there are universities, I know, not in, uh, I don't know them in Europe, but in in the US where you get points to say so credits if you work with some other discipline. Here you're basically punished because economists published in economics journals with uh, impact factors of like four or five or so uh, or philosophy is probably two and then in uh, medicine it's a uh, 50 is a good one or in basic science and so on and so on. So that's one of the problems that we're facing in, in our um, at our school is that um, the uh, system for rewards, promotions, uh, academic advancement, uh, when you deal with various disciplines working on the same theme. 
Paul, I'm married to an anthropologist. Okay, what does an anthropologist do? They publish books now and then, you know. But so there's a very different value system. And again, we need to incorporate that into our, you know, again, coming back to our topic here, into our uh, scientific advice to policymakers who don't always understand all these differences, you know. That's one of the problems in, so with crisis management is the, the hunger for a star, for someone who knows it all, and Rambo coming to solve here, the, you know, uh, this, this thing, and, and a lot of the war type of a military language and all that, it's so typical. And how do you manage that is also not so uh, obvious for scientists. And some scientists love that as well. So they, they just exacerbate the problem. So when we talk about involving many different disciplines, clearly we're not just talking about bringing in like the social sciences, but also humanities and subjects like philosophy. Um, and I think there's a different set of issues that are interesting to explore when we're talking about including things like ethics and values explicitly in science advice. Um, so let me start by disentangling or asking you if you think it's possible to disentangle two different things that we might mean when we talk about integrating ethics and values into science advice. So one strand of discussion is about being aware of and, and, and welcoming and harnessing the values that come into play in the process of doing science and giving science advice, uh, how we can do these things with proper regard for ethical considerations and being aware of the values that influence the scientific evidence and, and that kind of thing. And then the other strand is when you have advisors who are actually giving advice to policymakers on ethics, so treating that as a domain of expertise, just as they might give advice on, uh, I don't know, epidemiology or geology or behavioral science or whatever else. So that second kind of involvement of ethics, which I take it you're talking about, particularly when you talk about the importance of multidisciplinary um, science advice during the pandemic. So, so perhaps, Christiana, at least first, can you say a bit more about how that kind of ethics advice works, what it does, what it seeks to do? It's mainly about being explicit. Um, so analyzing what is at stake um, with regard to the values that guide you and that uh, that underlie what you're thinking or what you want to decide. Um, you have trade-offs, you, you have policy decisions where you implement containment measures, but you then have to think about the consequences on freedom, on privacy, on self-determination, on distributive justice, on the justice of capabilities, um, and so on. So on the dignity of people, first of all. So the ethics that the European Group on Ethics in Science and Technologies follows is, of course, very much tied to the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, so starting from dignity and the fundamental rights and freedoms. And we had a very first statement in this pandemic on solidarity, European solidarity in the pandemic. And we stressed the point that the worst that can come out of this crisis is that the infringement on fundamental rights is something perceived as normal and as usual. And we have so many infringements on fundamental rights at the moment, and they are necessary really to manage the pandemic. But they have to be restricted. There has to be a time given where all this ends or is at least discussed again. Um, and it has to be fully implemented again then that we have our full freedoms and fundamental rights. And let's think a little bit about the technology 
yeah, the test, trace and um, isolate strategy and some apps and so on that are implemented. And we have a huge discussion on data protection in in Europe. We have the GDPR and we have a, a wonderful level of data protection in Europe. And that was the sign for the world that we got this done. And now we have the discussion whether privacy and data protection is kind of a super fundamental right. Yeah, that has to be protected at any means, although it would perhaps be helpful if we had some more data to follow up the epidemiology of the spread of the virus and so on. So those are all deliberations where ethics comes in. Yeah, you can build ethics in the technology, have privacy by design if you design the tracing apps and so on. And I think those weighings are just the instruments and what ethics does all the time. Yeah, pointing to the values, identifying what is at stake in a specific decision or situation, and then come in and say, well, but we need more data about that because it's an ethical claim to take the natural sciences and epidemiology and so on serious. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's clear. Thanks for the for the good example. I wonder whether ethics has a kind of a problem here, which I also see as someone who works in science communication too, actually, that you you clearly have experts, but you also have a lot of other people who feel that they have expertise in this area too. And I wonder whether that's a particularly acute issue with ethics advice, because it's not only that everyone feels like they understand values, but also there's a traditional like conceptual divide between science advisors and policymakers where the advisors um, advise on the facts, on the way the world is, and maybe on options, but it's up to the policymaker who does the weighing up between the expert advice and all the other considerations, including, of course, values. So I wonder whether including ethical advice on the advice side is always welcome or whether it can muddy the water somewhat when it comes to making that role distinction clear. What, what do you, has it been your experience? Um, yeah, that can be because everyone is kind of an ethics expert because everyone has moral convictions, attitudes and so on. But if you then take a method in thinking about ethics, you quite quickly see and perceive that there are contradictions. Like what? Let's take the example of um, the triage situation where you have different attitudes to allocate ventilators to people in need. Um, and people say, well, it's about saving the most lives. And then you say, well, what is about saving the most life years? Because then if they take concrete decisions, you see, well, but, but what you're doing is not saving lives, it's about saving life years. And that can be fewer people where you can save more life years than if you save a lot of people that are already quite old. So yeah, to identify inconsistencies, to identify the premises where they start. So if you take this um, kind of utilitarian approach to count lives and say it's all about saving the most lives, yet then you can at least ask what about dignity of every human being? Every human being has the same value. So having a lot of lives is not more value than having one life. So it's more about the right to access um, to the medical 
also to medical healthcare or to the ventilator, to be concrete. Um, so why is one life more worth than other than the other? Taking dignity seriously means that you cannot start from saving the most lives. Yeah. So these discussions are very important and take the allocation of the vaccines now. Yeah, we seem to have a quite European view. Ethics would say, please take the global view. Yeah. As a vision, you could say, please take all the vaccines, put them into one distribution and allocation mechanism, and then decide according to medical, epidemiological, and social aspects. Yeah, take them together and have an allocation scheme that takes every human life on this planet serious. Um, so, yeah, identifying those framings and mentalities and images of the human being and images of the world is kind of the task of ethics in these circumstances. Um, two comments only. One is, when one talks about ethics, there is a usage of language that is familiar to everybody. They're, they're terms that people feel they know what they mean. And it, this leads, I think, to the point that Christian's already said. Everybody has a view. Everybody has something to say. Um, when we come to the science, we start talking, as Peter said, about plasmids and spike proteins and R factors. And that immediately puts up a barrier um, where people feel nervous, and particularly politicians, and uh, for example, talking about it. So we have to somehow square that, that, um, that those talking about ethics find themselves thrown into the political debate in a more serious way than perhaps the scientists. And I think that's something we need to think about. The second one is something that I wrestle with. And that is, of course, different societies have different values and different thoughts about ethics. And this is particularly crucial in the situation of, of a pandemic where we are asking people to do certain things that they may not be happy to do. If you're in China, you have a command structure and uh, the society is much, and the public within that society, are much more used to obeying what their leadership says. In the West, there tends to be um, more emphasis on personal freedoms. And indeed, much of what Christian was talking about was about personal freedoms. But when we get into an ethics issue, it is different in different parts of the globe. And there is issues about what is correct, first of all, in terms of just normal living. And there is also the issue of what is most effective in dealing with something like a pandemic. And we are probably learning some of the aspects there that the enormous emphasis, for example, in the United States on personal freedom and not looking at society as a whole, has probably had big impact there, which would be almost incomprehensible in China. Yeah, that's completely right. And if I um, may add a little bit on that, I think the role of cultural understandings and habits and ethics is a complex one as well. So sometimes you see that people say, well, that's our cultural identity, and that's all. There is no ethical objection to that. And I don't think so. I think ethics has to take serious what culture says about the values of people and their way of living. But there should nevertheless be the possibility to ask whether these cultural habits align to human rights. Yeah, if you have the human rights approach, then the country should at least admit that they don't want to follow human rights. But if they want to do so, 
then they have to stick to them. And then there can be different ways, different traditions, different cultures. So sticking to human rights doesn't mean that we all have to live in the same culture and that cultural differences are not possible within the framework of human rights or fundamental freedoms. Um, but there are things that you can question. So if there is a culture that doesn't grant women access to education yeah, because they have another cultural tradition, at least you can say from the ethical point of view, why is there a difference between women and men with regards to the access to education as one very important resource to lead the life you want to live? And that's not necessarily saying that the personal freedom without social relationships is the highest good. Absolutely not. You cannot think about personal freedom without being a socialized human being. But to, to make a difference, a deep difference between women and men in the possibility to lead their lives is an ethical problem, though a cultural habit in some areas of this world. Yeah, I certainly agree with everything that was said and whether people like it or not but no science policy advice without values they're always coloring what uh, we say give as scientific advice because it what comes in is what our values in terms of what do we feel is important as a person as society i mean from gender to in the uk the religion is the nhs protecting the nhs this is like the ultimate value and there is a practical aspect on that but it's also i think it has been elevated to um some kind of religious or ideological or whatever uh, thing so i'm going to be in trouble with having said that but i think and that i'm not saying it's good or bad but you know a lot of the policy advice is then colored by that so and and some of it is then personal ethical value secondly i think where ethics can be also very uh, useful in, in my experience, uh, besides the, the general considerations that Christian mentioned, and that is to point to the consequences of decisions. Decisions that are being taken, you know, because there's the acute need, for example, triage is one of them, but for patients, but also who is getting the vaccine within a country, the vaccine worldwide and so on. So there are consequences of our actions and, and all of us, uh, when we're under such pressure and in a crisis, uh, we don't have the time or the luxury or so to think about it. And that's where then um, ethics is very useful because they will state us what are our values, what are, the, what are the ethical implications, and should we do A or B or a bit less of A and a bit more of B and not for the current, uh, solving the current problem or not. And then certainly on culture, I was going to make the same comments uh, or similar comments as Christian. And I think that's probably a pretty underestimated um, driver of epidemics and their trajectories also. And culture, we can argue what is culture and sound, but it's an ensemble of many things. But when you take two extremes, Paul mentioned China, the other extreme is like the US. And so in a culture where it's about me, myself and I, I mean, you can't really have collective action where populations are saying, you know, even wearing a mask, which you would argue would be a non-starter, because this, what, what's the point? It's a bit of a nuisance for some, that that becomes then 
an infringement of your personal, me, myself and I, philosophy. And then you have societies where the community comes. And if in Japan people have been wearing a mask for over a century since the Spanish flu, it was not to protect themselves, but to protect the community. So this is uh, something that becomes more and more obvious, even within Europe, because we have different yeah, cultures, subcultures and so on. And there again, it's a, a combination of values and, and, and ethics also, because each of these values have ethical implications. You know, whether what's more important that you have a more equal distribution of wealth and that everybody has a more or less a good time, uh, a good life, or that you say, entrepreneurship, uh, making as much money as possible is the, uh, the value. I mean, this kind of uh, choices that implicitly are being made, but not so much explicitly. It, this, all this may sound very far from science advice, but it's not. Because again, it is implicitly in it. But then there's another issue, and that's less so about value and ethics, but it is because these are the, um, we get into the, the ethics and the values of science themselves. And sometimes um, some scientists, um, when it comes to policy advice, would apply the same criteria and rigor as they when they review a paper for nature or science. And uh, one example that we had to go through was masks. Like in the UK for months, the majority of the advisors uh, to the government science were against using masks because, and you know, the evidence is not there from randomized controlled trials, uh, preferably done by British scientists in British institutions or British people. And, and you can argue the same for other countries. And, uh, and it's an example of the best being the enemy of the good when the, the circumstantial evidence was all going into the same direction. But that's also then, uh, you, here you go into the, um, yeah, the values of the practice of science, which is a science in itself. It's an illusion to think there is something like pure science. I mean, that's a, a pure in the sense uh, that is nothing to do with society. Let's put it that way. Right. So when I said I wanted to distinguish two roles of ethics, I'm now counting at least four. There's the ethics of giving science advice. There's advising on ethics. There's the cultural values which affect what advice you can realistically give and, and, and what measures you can take and their effects and so on. And then there's the values of science itself. And there is one specific thing I want to point out where there is a burden or a difficulty in science advice because science, and I include ethics here, is not about compromise. And policy is about building compromises. In science, you don't say, well, we, are, we have a descent, lake tail, let's take half of gravity. <laughs> No, gravity is gravity, yeah? And you, do, so you don't say, well, if you give me um, that the virus is not transmitted via aerosols, I give you that we don't have to wear masks or so, yeah? So, so it's not about deliberating in this way. It's about saying what is the fact, what is the decision, what is a logic solution or conclusion and so on. And then you have to give it to the policymakers. And of course, they have to take the decisions. And that are the pitfalls of science advice that you only can advise. You can try to explain something, you can point out to a complexity and so on. But then the policy, the politicians have to decide. And there are compromises come in 
where advisors can say, wow, I wouldn't, I would have done that in a completely different way, um, starting from the same facts. But that's the way it is. I think this is really a very good point and important point. Uh, thank you. Well, so the, the, the point about different roles is, is well taken, but then, um, so I'm glad you mentioned it because there's something I read with great interest in the advice you submitted, which is about the role of scientists, the responsibility of scientists, in fact, to push back vigorously against misinformation, uh, quote, even if it puts them in conflict with their political leadership, end quote. Now, the examples you give in your statement are of debunking really egregious falsehoods like uh, drinking bleach to fight the virus or, or blaming 5G for the pandemic or whatever. And these seem like fairly easy cases to adjudicate. I, I, I believe the technical term for those kinds of things is, is bullshit. But there are plenty of examples of less dramatic or more nuanced disagreements between scientists and politicians about the nature and interpretation of the evidence as it relates to policy. Things like the role children play in the infection chain or... Um, casting our minds back a few months, what is the quote-unquote right social distance to maintain? Where, and in these cases, I think the appropriate public response from scientists is, is a more uh, thorny question. So taking into account, as you just expressed, the need to respect the clearly different roles of the advisor and, and the decision maker, are there any general principles for how science advisors should proceed if they disagree with the politicians on a particular policy or interpretation of the science? Yeah, I think they should also be transparent. There are di There's disagreement between scientists themselves. And I think that is very important that they talk to each other. It's completely normal that in science you have different interpretations of data or you say, well, you should take these data also into account and then the picture changes. Um, and they should do it by themselves personally, and they should do it in the public as well, because it's instructive. It has to be respectful. It has to be on the scientific basis. It's, it's not about who is more famous and more influential. It's then about science. And I subsume ethics under science. I, I use science in the broad understanding of the word. Yeah. And um, if you have a dissent between scientists and politicians, then you have to make clear where the dissent is. So it's completely okay if politicians say, well, I take this decision, they are entitled to do this, but they are not entitled to say, I do not give my reasons for deciding this way. Yeah, so the thing that scientists or advisors can push to is to say, why do you do that? And I think that is a duty of transparency that the politician doesn't have only with regard to the advisors, but also to the public, because they have to decide then afterwards who they vote the next time. I think it is very important that this transparency about the reasons why you do something and why you decide differently to what science advisors said and suggested, um, yeah, that this is transparent. Yeah, and it's very difficult to, for, for politicians to say what we just follow science. No, there's no way to just follow science because there are so many other aspects to take into account in the political arena. Um, and that is not the task of the science advisors, including ethics advisors, but it, it's the task of the policymakers to take the scientific advice into account and then say what they do with it. 
When a scientist needs to call out a politician here, I mean, for, for not making their reasons clear or for making a bad call as they see it, why is the situation not analogous to something like cabinet collective responsibility? You know, the principle there would be that the science advisor is free to give their advice frankly and to disagree when they're sitting around the table with the ministers, like behind closed doors. But once the collective decision has been taken, they're then bound in public to to back it up and to kind of swallow their disagreement. Or even more clearly, maybe as an analogy, you've got something like the civil service code where government officials are expected and contractually bound to implement the, the government policy. So when a scientist is hired by the government as a science advisor, I mean, whether money changes hands or not, you still have that kind of uh, relationship. Why don't they come under a similar principle? I think science has another um, public role. I am not sure whether I completely agree with this rule that you cannot be transparent anymore if there is a decision behind closed doors and then you go out to the public. I think that that could be but that is another podcast. One reason for lacking trust in policy, at least partly. Yeah. So we have no complete trust in what is going on in, uh, in policy making. And part of that could be the feeling of lacking transparency. Yeah. But of course, I see the other point as well, that if you only have discussions and debates and controversy in the public, that is damaging as well. And that can destroy trust as well. It is more about how people do it, whether they do it only to become famous themselves, to say how clever they are. Um, so if it is more a narcissistic way of doing policy, or if they do it because they really mean and want to contribute uh, contribute to a public discourse, to an informed public discourse. And so there's, of course, a very delicate balance to find. But for science, it is about insight that you think is true. And you cannot hold back something that you find is true. You always, as a scientist, have to have the attitude of falsification. So you put what you find is true in the public or in a scientific community, and you ask for contesting it. Yeah, Say me what is wrong in what I find is true. And then you have this discussion and you come together and say, well, perhaps it's a third position, perhaps it's the position of one or the other one. And um, I think this is the in, at the core of science to develop insight, to ask questions, how you see things, and then go one step after the other on the way to, let's call it truth, or let's call it um, facts or so, very delicate philosophical discussion (laughs) to use these notions, Um, but, but being aware that you're never at the end of insight. Yeah, thank you very much. That's interesting. So, okay, we've talked uh, a lot about ethics and science advice and about the need for multidisciplinarity too. But I know there's a lot more advice in these two documents, your statement and your joint opinion, um, about other elements of science advice and, and its role in fighting a health crisis like a pandemic. So before we finish, I wanted to make sure that we've, we've covered any other really important 
points that you want to make. For instance, I know you make the point very strongly in the documents that giving science advice in times of crisis is really difficult. And there are all kinds of explanations you, you give for this and implications of it. Um, perhaps you'd like to give us a kind of whirlwind tour of some of these points? Well, I think um, at least one aspect that is very important that has to be uh, considered is that knowledge of the situation, knowledge about, for example, in a pandemic, about a virus that previously was unknown, means that the scientific understanding is tentative and evolving. And what that means, and it's quite often difficult to communicate to both politicians and the public, um, but what science has to say at the beginning um, may not be something that stands always the test of time because the knowledge will evolve. And this is a difficult thing to handle because we're taught at school quite often that science is, um, is chiselled in granite. You know, it's like Newton's laws of motion. And um, what we don't recognise is that um, some science has been around for hundreds of years and been tested to destruction and other uh, scientific issues has only been around for a few weeks and our knowledge is accumulating. So I personally think that makes this situation one of the most difficult uh, situations to give scientific advice about. I think the complexity of the situation is so overwhelming because the pandemic touches every area of our lives. Um, you have medical, epidemiological, um, behavioral, economic, social, ethical, and so on issues. And they are all linked together. And this complexity makes it very difficult because you have to put all perspectives together and you act under uncertainty. You give advice under uncertainty, as Paul already pointed out. So um, to put it bluntly, just to, yeah, to, to make it feelable, <laughs> um, what is causing more deaths? The pandemic itself or the containment measures? Yeah, so the virus can kill people, but the containment measures also can kill people. Think of the poverty and the report of the World Bank um, that more than 150 million people will probably be pushed into severe poverty, having less than $1.19 a day to live from. So I think to weigh this, to have all these trade-offs that we have to uh, uh, to take into account into this pandemic is a very complex situation. Hmm. I think it's managing um, a few things at the same time that makes so the first of all managing uncertainty from the science perspective. Uh, it's incredibly difficult and we scientists we thrive on uncertainty in a sense and uh, on debate and on difficult questions but um, this is not the time to do that in public. Uh, and that confuses. But so managing uncertainty and then managing a crisis. So, and this is where I would agree with Christian. So in a sense, we have to, uh, policymakers and the public want an answer to the problem today. But I think it's also our job to make sure we are all, not only uh, digress into short-termism, which is really one of the hallmarks of society, I would say, uh, and because there are long-term consequences of the short-term um, actions and uh, and that certainly uh, when you think uh, an epidemic like this not only uh, exposes the fault lines on society but also exacerbates the vulnerabilities the inequalities the issues and what was weak before be it governance or be it people's economic situation and so on will only get worse 
uh, in this kind of crisis. So uh, it makes it really very difficult. And doing all that while you're constantly under the microscope. That's something that's also very different. When you have policy advice about major, you know, I don't know, social issues or whatever, there is more time. And basically, uh, until the report is there, nobody really cares in the by public, except the ones that are really involved in it. But here, the media there, and it's not only the classic one, the social media, whatever you say is amplified in one way or another. Managing all that uh, is, is a problem. And then I would say that there's sometimes a confusion of roles. I mean, I find it utterly ridiculous that a prime minister is going to explain what the reproductive rate of an infection is, you know, or talk about uh, virus mutants. And also scientists who think that they're in charge of the country um, for policy. So uh, that is something where there is hubris on both sides. And uh, I, I think that's uh, a very uh, balancing act uh, where there is no clear cut type of uh, uh, rule. But um, uh, it's, it's, we need to invent all the time uh, each other's roles. and. Uh, and I think the most difficult that I've been in, involved with in, in my past life, when I was head of UNAIDS, I was a so-called policymaker and had to take some decisions. That's when, for example, we made estimates about how many people have HIV infection in the world in certain countries. And um, these are estimates. And at some point we had to revise uh, like the data for India from, uh, I can't remember the exact time, but let's say from 5 million to 2 million people. You know, I made it to the front page of the Washington Post and being accused of inflating data or falsifying data and so on. Whereas all that has happened is that we had much better data and, a, you know, we had put in place a better surveillance system, which takes years. And so when you have to change the, how to say, the policy advice because the data change, that is a very difficult moment. And that's where, particularly in today's world, conspiracy theories are there, but also COVID is also a very political issue, maybe less so in some countries, but in some other countries, the Middle extreme being like countries like Brazil and, uh, and the US, but nearly everywhere, uh, it is highly political. And, and again, scientists hate that, but formally, but on the other hand, they're also doing the politics all the time themselves. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay, so, so to finish, I have a question actually for you, Peter, although, of course, anyone else is welcome to comment on it. Um, earlier, you made the point about how cultural values color not only um, how society responds to particular measures, but also how science advice is given and what the content of that advice might be. And then even earlier, I think you mentioned that the failure to nurture interdisciplinary science advice and, like, cross-disciplinary science in general would fail to live up to our European way of working, by which I guess, well, you can tell me what you meant, perhaps. So do you think the way we do science advice, and indeed your recommendations on how we should do it in the future, are reflective of a distinctly like European cultural way of doing things? Where is Europe in all this? I, I always think, um, you know, what, how are we different? And one of the points that I kind of emphasized is that we should make sure in, in these um, uh, recommendations and this policy analysis that Europe is not an island. So we are part of the world. Um, you know, we have both, uh, we are influenced by what's going on outside Europe, but also we have responsibilities. We are part of a global uh, 
um, yeah, system from the, of the planet. We uh, are contributing to destroying the planet, so we can now con contribute to uh, restoring the planet and saving it. Uh, and that's also for, for epidemics. Um, so that, that dimension I felt was not there in the beginning. It was uh, kind of, we were only thinking of Europe, Europe, Europe. And then I said, wait a minute, I mean, uh, wake up, you know, this, what we call in the EU jargon, our neighborhood. That's one thing. And, uh, but the, it's not just uh, the neighborhood, it's the whole world. And, and nothing has, uh, you know, has illustrated better than something that started in a city in China that most people had never heard of, suddenly has taken over everybody's lives. So we need to be on top of that. But I think that, uh, so it should be the norm and um, it could be organized in a way that uh, being uh, proposed by um, um, in the report. We need to use this opportunity. Every crisis is an opportunity. And that's why I also like the leadership of, uh, you know, President Ursula von der Leyen, because she sees that as an opportunity for bringing, um, you know, more attention to, to health. That plus uh, my other passion is that and let's say the green agenda to make sure that we are, let's say, a world leader, but for our citizens, but for the world as a whole. And, and this is where some values can come. In. Well said. Well, then it remains only for me to say thank you to all three of you, Peter, Paul and Christiana, and to pay my respects to the diary planning deities um, for the miracle that allowed this conversation to take place at all, given that all three of you are some of the most in-demand people I could ever wish to interview. So I'm really very grateful for that and for your time and thoughts. And I think this has been a, a most illuminating conversation. So thanks again. Thank you very much. It was very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and I hope it will turn out to be a useful podcast. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learned societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.